0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I am Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: Doing fantastic today, Tim. It's been a great week. We had a couple of really great episodes of our new show, Dark Valley, released, which is about the Connecticut River Valley murders that took place in the 80s, late 70s to the late 80s. But, Tim, we have breaking news in the true crime serial killer world. That's very exciting. How are you? Are you as excited as I am here? I am doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. Yeah, I'm really excited. There is a
0: suspect that was just arrested in the case of the Long Island serial killer. And so there's a lot of victims that span these crimes. But they have arrested a man named Rex Hewerman, 59 years old, apparently an architect in Manhattan,
1: But he lives in Massapequa Park now, and he was just arrested. And Tim, friends have described him as being organized, friendly, and available. A lot of people were just taken by surprise by this. He seemed to be flying under the radar as far as his homicidal tendencies were concerned. But we looked back in our archives of episodes and decided that it was important to re-release this particular episode with author Robert Kolker.
0: Yeah, Robert Kolker is a great guy, and we spoke with him a few years ago now, back in 2020, about his book called Lost Girls, An Unsolved American Mystery. And it's about five presumed victims of a serial killer, and these victims were found on Long Island Beach in 2010. And the victims that Robert Kolker wrote about in his book are Shannon Gilbert, Maureen Brannard-Barnes, Melissa Barthelemy, Megan Waterman, and Amber Lynn Costello.
1: So we hope you enjoy this interview with Robert Kolker, and we will be keeping up to date with the news of Rex Heuerman, the man who has been arrested in connection with the Long Island serial killings.
0: Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or well, what
2: about that time I got lost in the
0: Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold, And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world.
1: We know this stuff because we've been
0: there. We've seen it and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. We are being joined today by a wonderful author by the name of Robert Kolker. Robert, how are you today? Just fine, thanks. Thanks for having me on today.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. We know uh, you're super busy with your writing and especially uh, busy with your book, Lost Girls and Unsolved American Mystery. We'll primarily talk about that, but also a little bit about your writing career and the new Netflix show that is or the new Netflix movie that is uh, that's out Based on the book, is you you said you were at the premiere last night at Sundance. So my very long-winded uh, introduction here was to just thank you for taking time out of your day to join us with everything that's going on right now in your life professionally.
2: Well, I'm really glad this case is getting attention. It really, you know, it remains unsolved. So the more people who hear about it, the better.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, something that we try to do as much as possible on Crawl Space is to, you know, we're not looking to solve anything. We're looking to continually raise awareness for cold cases and especially awareness for cold cases that involve um, a, a section of the population that's often forgotten about, which is what uh, you deal with with Lost Girls Uh Give us a little bit of a a background as to what got you involved with uh, the the Long Island serial killer in the first place or the alleged Long Island serial killer in the first place.
2: Well, uh, back in um, at the end of 2010, uh, the first four sets of human remains were discovered alongside Ocean Parkway, which for those who aren't New Yorkers, is a really relatively desolate, long, straight stretch of highway that's far away from Manhattan off in Long Island. Uh, heading out toward the Hamptons, toward vacation land. But there's really, you know, it's really a place that most people just drive through. Nobody stops. And there along the highway, they found four sets of human remains, and they quickly said that they were escorts. And um, at the time, I was a full-time staff writer at New York Magazine, where I wrote lots of long narrative feature stories about social issues and about crime. And immediately we thought, my, my editor and I, that perhaps i should go and try and cover it but um i um i didn't at that time because i was pretty sure that the case would be solved before i even got in the car because uh you know this had happened about 18 months after the craigslist killer case up in um, new england where police tracked the digital trail of the culprit and caught him right away and i thought well if there are four victims that's four digital trails so they're going to find this four times as quickly, but they didn't find him. And then there was a second surprise, which is that I think at the time, you know, most people thought that um, these victims would remain anonymous, that it'd be hard to identify them because we assumed that they were quite literally lost, lost girls or lost women, that they were off the grid and not in the system. But sure enough, each of them got identified and each of them had families who had been looking for them for years and hadn't gotten a lot of traction from the police. And I met those families, and that became the story I wrote for New York Magazine, and that became the book I wrote, Lost Girls, which really focuses on how these victims became vulnerable in the first place. And one story it also focuses on is the one woman whose case brought them all together, a fifth woman named Shannon Gilbert. Shannon and her family are really the focus of the movie Lost Girls, which will be on Netflix March 13th. That movie's been in and out of development ever since the book was published in 2013. And so it was exciting to be there at Sundance to see those guys uh, and director Liz Garbus in particular, uh, you know, happily celebrate that the movie was done and, and was getting such great attention.
1: Yeah. And I want to take a moment to mention the names of the women that you focus on in Lost Girls and, and also to commend you for taking such a large uh, chunk of the book is is dedicated to how they were brought up and how they became uh, sex workers or call girls, how they ended up seeking out the employment on Craigslist. Instead of focusing on the, the or glamorizing a serial killer that may or may not exist, you really took a lot of time to humanize these uh, these four women. Uh, can you uh, tell us? who these women were and when their bodies were found and, you know, anything you want to talk about, uh, in relation to them.
2: Sure. I'll just say that in, in all, there are more than 10 sets of human remains that they ended up finding along the parkway and not everybody is identified. The women I focused on in the book were identified and there are a couple more who were, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the ones who are in the book. In 2007, a woman named Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who was a mother of two, um, from Connecticut, uh, went into New York for a few nights to work as an escort out of a hotel in Times Square. She had done this a number of times before. She had always been with friends or with at least one other person looking out for her. This time around, all of her friends left, and she decided to stay a couple extra days to try to get enough money to avoid being evicted from her apartment. She wasn't seen again. Uh, the last time anyone heard from her, she had called saying she was at Penn Station. And was hoping to get home, but then she disappeared, and her body was found three years later out in Long Island. So, how she got there, who picked her up, who—whether it was a client who she had arranged a uh, time with, or whether it was a different kind of abduction—nobody knows. Um, and her family it took—it took two years for them to get Maureen's name even on the register of um, missing persons which really tells you something about how uh, missing women in this line of work are really villainized in our society. Anyone else who's a murder victim, they're a murder victim. But when escorts are murdered, it's their fault. Yeah. And and that's really the, the core problem that, that Lost Girls really addresses. And you see it through the eyes of their family members who, you know, it's not like they had not seen these women for years and years and years and then suddenly they just, you know, they our murder victims, they had been in close touch with them and then they had disappeared and then nobody cared. And then suddenly the only reason people cared is because they were caught up in a serial killer investigation. They were extras in a in a manhunt for a monster. And and so that's why I felt it was important to focus on the women and ask different sorts of questions like, why did Maureen do this? You know, why did she make the decision to to, you know, do this line of work? And what exactly happened In the days and weeks before she disappeared and what happened after she disappeared so that's maureen and that was in 2007 and then in 2009 melissa bartholome a woman from buffalo who had been living in the bronx uh she disappeared she was last seen outside of her apartment in the bronx and apparently she had a client in long island who has not been identified the police haven't been able to track them down but that's the last anyone heard of her. She was heading out to Long Island to see a client. And then her body turned up just a tenth of a mile away from uh, the other three sets of human remains along Ocean Parkway. Melissa uh, had come to New York City from Buffalo a couple years earlier. She um, was driven to be a success. Her mother uh, was a single parent who had worked all of her life in menial jobs to support her. And, uh, it seems that she was determined to be financially self-sufficient. And she was for a time, um, and then drifted into escort work to maintain her income and then disappeared. It's a real tragedy. Yeah. That's Melissa. Oh, I should talk a little bit about Melissa as long as we have a second. Sure. Oh yeah. She disappeared and her, her her and her mother wanted the police to look for her right away and was getting pushback from the police the same way that Maureen's family was back in Connecticut. But what happened in Buffalo is that one day Melissa's little sister got a phone call in the August of, in August of two thousand nine and she looked at the caller ID and it was Melissa's phone. So she rejoiced. She thought Melissa's back. She she's okay. And she answered the phone and said Melissa, but it wasn't Melissa. It was a man who was taunting her and calling Melissa a, a whore, and um, quite quite clearly someone who who knew who she was and who had her phone. And uh, it took three more phone calls for the police to start taping the calls and trying to trace the calls. There was something like six or seven or eight calls in all, but the police were never able to get a location a specific location from these calls and at the end the, the the man on the other end of the line basically said that he had killed Melissa and and so the police believe and most people believe that this was the killer and yet there was no um, headway made in the investigation even with that close contact
1: that was in 2010 that was 2010 uh,
2: 2000 that was the summer of 2009 those um those phone calls. How, so before this case it was a national story.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. How long after the bodies were 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 found, or the bodies weren't found, right? Right. And yeah, then Before the, the call came through, and her sister was excited because they hadn't known the location of her yet. And then, did he say that he murdered uh, Melissa, and then they found the body, or how did how did it how did it go down? I'm sorry for. Uh, it, that that uh, this this well, detail kind of knocked um, yeah, me over I've, a little bit.
2: <laughs> sure, I was jumping around a little. So no, in no. August of two thousand nine, which is a year and a, a year and a half before um, before the bodies are found on the beach, Melissa's been missing for a few weeks. She disappeared in July of two thousand nine, and that's when her sister gets these phone calls. And in the last phone call, the the man who we all assume to be the killer says something like, "I'm watching your sister's body rot," and Jesus. that's the end of the phone calls. And and this is this is not a at the time this isn't something that's on Dateline or on 48 Hours. It's not in the papers. It's it's a Buffalo story at most, and nobody nothing really comes of it. And it takes a full 18 months for Melissa's body to be found with the others, and for the public in general to learn about the ins and outs of the of those phone calls. Three more three more women disappear, by the way, between then and now. Right. In the in the meantime.
1: And, and this was brought to the police's attention uh, after the first phone call, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay, that's frustrating. Yeah. And because they knew what line of work Melissa was in, they didn't put it on any sort of priority. They didn't have any, uh, I guess, inkling that this could be somebody doing it in a serialized fashion.
2: Exactly. And um, there are two ways of looking at that. The first is that these women weren't minors, that they were adults living on their own and making their own decisions. And and sometimes escorts drift in and out of sight. And so the police were playing the averages and figured, well, Melissa will turn up eventually. Maybe she just moved away or, or found a different uh, place to be for a while. That's one way of looking at it. And then the other way of looking at it is that statistically, escorts are, are victims of violence and victims of violence by multiple offenders. And there's a reason why serial killers, why multiple offenders go after women like this because they think the police don't care and they're right the police in general don't follow up on cases of missing escorts and so it's a it's a um vicious circle that's been continuing for some time like ever since jack the Ripper.
0: oh yeah you're right so months
2: go by after melissa disappears and then in the spring of 2010 a couple things happen the first thing is that megan waterman a woman from Maine comes to Long Island with her boyfriend and gets a hotel room at a Holiday Inn Express right off the highway in Long Island. And her boyfriend heads out for the night. She's alone. She's last seen on a closed circuit camera on a, on a surveillance camera leaving the hotel. She's never seen again. She disappears. Her her boyfriend has an alibi. And and she becomes you know, the third woman in this story to disappear. And that again is a local Portland, Maine story. It may be, you know, her, her family holds a vigil. They try to raise some money. Uh, it makes the local papers. It maybe makes a local paper in Long Island. But again, most people are not really thinking much about how there's a serial killer out there.
1: Wasn't there a phone call that Megan made at like 1.30 in the morning after the timestamp from the hotel security?
2: She does call her mother, and I think it's before she goes out,
1: oh, okay. right before she goes.
2: She checked in because, uh, because she's left her daughter at home.
1: Oh, okay. Gotcha.
2: Again, this is a woman who's, 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 um, you know, who's supporting her, her boyfriend and her daughter through her work. Megan's storyline follows more closely the classic storyline of the Romeo pimp, of the boyfriend who uh, the woman is in love with, but who also is making money off of her work as a sex worker. And, and that, that's what happened in, in Megan's case. She had an extremely complicated childhood with lots of neglect, but she also had a lot of people in social services, a social worker, a local cop who really cared about her and were looking out for her and hoping the best for her. Um, lo- looking at the story of her life, you can actually get a sense of what it must be like to be a young woman at risk in a in a family that's, that's sort of bubbling up and down the poverty line. You, you see how your choice is narrow as you grow up for Melissa also and for for Maureen and, and for Megan, they all they all were looking at lives, either working at the Kmart and the Dunkin' Donuts or working a couple nights a week as an escort and making five times as much as what they could make in a day job.
1: Yeah, and exactly so they
2: took the leap. The money solved their problems until it didn't until their lives got more complicated as a result and more tragic and then finally they disappeared.
1: You mentioned a, a a local cop that sort of befriended uh, Megan. Did you end up uh, speaking with him, and what what was the circumstances there? Because it was it's sort of a it's sort of a uh, endearing part of the story.
2: Well, one thing about a lot of these women growing up in small towns is that everybody knew them because everyone knows one another. And Megan Megan was very much on the radar of local law enforcement because she was a a kid with um you know from an unstable family, and so she was acting out. And loitering at night and stuff like that. And so, so there was a local cop named Doug Weed, who I did spend a, you know, a day with up in, up in Maine and learned about, you know, how much he knew about her, how he tried to advise her. You know, he did feel like the whole time that he was talking to her as a teenager, that she was sort of on the edge, that she was, you know, incredibly intelligent, very savvy, um, but also had a real kind of had a hole in her heart where she was in a constant state of heartbreak from an abandonment that she had as a as a child by both parents, and and uh, a feeling of being unsafe that she was trying to um, reconcile, trying hard to find somebody who could bring her life a little bit of stability, falling in love a little too easily with the wrong people, and and he, you know, his heart sort of went out to her. And, you know, sometimes he'd catch her, you know, I don't know, smoking pot outside a store or something, and he, sometimes he'd bring her in and call her grandmother who was taking care of her, and sometimes he'd cut her some slack. He was trying to make judgment calls about what would be best for her in that particular moment. But inevitably, she drifted out of sight and hooked up with the wrong boyfriend and then started making trips to New York to make money. And on one of those trips, she disappeared. And so, you know, you sort of slip away just that easily in the eyes of somebody like, uh, like that police officer who had the best of intentions, but couldn't, couldn't be there for her every minute of every day.
0: Yeah. God, this is such a big story. How did you know where to f- focus? I mean, uh, I guess there were only a few, a few victims found at the time you, you wrote this book, but um, what a complicated story this has become.
2: I decided to write about five lives, you know, in five families and five women and, and sort of tell their stories. And initially, when I started thinking about it as a book, my, the responses I got were along the lines of, but there's no killer yet. There's no ending to the story. And I, and my response would be, Oh, I, I would want to write a very different kind of book about that would have crime in it, but, but the murders wouldn't be the only crime. Um, it would be like a lot of great true crime books that I love, like, like homicide by David Simon and Ed Burns. And, um, and random family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc and and um, there are no children here by Alex Kotlowitz. That so talks about people who are who are living in in you know what what some people would consider to be criminal lives, but they also are living on the edge of society and neglected, and and in a world where their choices are, are narrower than most people's. And so you see how how a, a whole segment of society lives that that you might you might encounter at the Dunkin' Donuts from the other side of the counter, but you may not really ever engage with. And so I, I thought that that would be a valuable book to write. And of course, the when, if and when I hope the the case is solved, then there is a, a different kind of ending. But until then, this, there's still important stories to tell.
1: And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Yeah, and I think you did a, an amazing job and... uh I, I think the, these are stories that need to be out there because I, I feel like all too often when you hear about a victim who is a sex worker, you think to yourself, how did they get to that point in their lives? And you are, you know, you a- are answering that question for these five victims.
2: Well, even in good works of, of crime, uh, crime narratives, they are off, all too often they are um, extras. They're sort of like plot devices Yeah. in, in the story. You know, like, you know, I love The Wire, but in season two of The Wire, the what sets the plot off in motion is uh, the container ship, op- you know, the container opens up in the port, and inside are more than a dozen dead young women who have been trafficked in as sex workers from Europe, uh, from Eastern Europe, and or from Russia, I can't remember. And um, And, of course, we never learn their names, we never learn anything about them, but the fact that they are there gets everything going in that season. And so... Uh, In fact, that's what I thought of when I first heard about these four women on the beach. Um, Their remains found along Ocean Parkway. I thought the one reason why I thought we'll never learn these women's stories is because of of things like that, of storylines like that. I thought people call off the grid and that's that. But these women were on the grid. And I think the big difference is that that the Internet has sort of revolutionized this line of work where a lot of people can lead more or less normal lives. Um, with children in touch with their parents, with families, and then just sort of steal away for the weekend, or or take calls in their house for a weekend while nobody else is around, and they don't have to lead this life 24/7. They don't have to uh, work on the street or even walk into a bad neighborhood to make money, and they don't need a pimp.
1: Exactly. You talked about Maureen and Melissa and Megan. Uh, And then there was Amber and Shannon who went missing in 2010. Can you tell us a little bit about Amber and Shannon?
2: Well, Shannon Gilbert is sort of a special case. She disappears in the spring of 2010, just a few weeks. uh, I think it's just a couple weeks before Megan does. And um, she's the only one in this case who has um, a driver take her to her last call and who has witnesses seeing her. You know, screaming and running from the house and hysterical and her disappearance in the gated community of Oak Beach uh, in the spring of 2010 is really what sets this story in motion because uh, it was the search for her that led to the discovery of the remains of the other four women and that eventually led to the discovery of all sorts of other human remains as well so if it weren't for Shannon there would not be a Long Island serial killer case now that said there is debate about whether Shannon is actually a victim of this killer because she's found in a different location. She worked with a driver who, who uh, had security and the other women did not. In certain ways, she does not fit the profile. And yet, in many ways, she's exactly like them. She's in her you know, early 20s. She's small. She worked Craigslist and Backpage. She's found just three miles away from where the others are found. And so it's tempting to, to bring her in with the other ones, But for my purposes, telling her story was equally important. And, you know, she's from Ellenville, New York, which is a, a tiny town halfway between Manhattan and Albany. She was in foster care for a lot of her teenage years. She had a complicated um, relationship with her mother. Her mother, Mary Gilbert, is the character who is the focus of the Lost Girls movie. She's another complicated person who really became a crusader for justice to advocate for women like her daughter after the tragedy. And and that turns her into a very good, you know, protagonist for a movie like, like the Lost girl's movie. She's played by Amy Ryan in the movie. Who's a you know, terrific actor. Yeah. Was actually on the, on the wire actually. Oh, but, right. um, so Shannon disappears. And um, again, doesn't make headlines. Nobody, nobody seems to mind if she were the daughter of a judge or if she were a medical student or a college kid, she'd be, you know, they'd be blaring. But no, nobody, nobody really, not even the neighbors in Oak Beach seem to care that she disappeared that night. Nobody seems to want to go looking for her. And and it and uh, it takes seven months for um, Shannon to become a, a, a newsworthy subject. And that's only because they find the other four bodies. Right, um, But in between that time, a few months later, Amber disappears. Amber Costello was spent most of her life in the South, in North Carolina, and she was an escort who came into the business because of her older sister, Kim. Um, Kim's interviewed extensively in the book, in Lost Girls, and you learn about their life together. They had tragic childhoods, but um, really stayed together as a family by making money together as escorts. And eventually, Amber found her way to long island where she was living with friends and doing calls out of her house kim was in long island too and um this is a story that really descends into drug addiction uh where where amber decides you know that she really can't quit either drugs or escort work and eventually you know has the wrong kind of call and disappears Mm. she disappears in september of 2010 and the her body and the bodies of the other three women are are found in december of 2010 and that's again just seven months after shannon disappeared too and then suddenly the case explodes and becomes uh something that nancy grace is talking about something that um everybody's you know doing the 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 whole one hour documentary thing on dateline and 48 hours both did things and so um, it, it suddenly becomes a thing. And these families are suddenly thrust into the spotlight. And one thing that Lost Girls does is it uh, tells the story of what happens to these families after they became the focus of scrutiny and national attention and how it felt to them to suddenly have to speak up for their lost daughter or lost sister when all the media was doing was calling them prostitutes. And half the people were blaming them for, the, for getting killed. And Lost Girls tells that story as well. And I should also point out to your listeners that it, it also talks about the case itself and whatever whatever's known publicly about various clues and and, and various conspiracy theories and, and other theories about who the killer might be.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important element of the book is you learn all, everything uh, you need to learn about the victims and, and the families, and it's really tragic, but it's a... Uh, it's like a cautionary tale as well. Um, this is a certain lifestyle that I think, if inevitably, has some always ends in a, badly for you know for the majority of the of the of the women who get involved with it. Uh, I know you said that you uh, were you were almost charged with writing the article uh, that was part of your job, but did you go into writing the book intending it to be a cautionary tale like this, or did it just develop as you spoke to the family?
2: I went into it thinking that um that that hopefully readers would learn about these women's lives and they would sort of keep score in their heads. They would say, Okay, all the stuff that happens to Maureen in her life, you know, how much of it is really her fault and her bad decisions and how much never had a chance because of various social conditions or bad parenting or any anything else that might have happened to her. And, and that they would sort of keep that ledger in their head for all five women. And my hope was that the broader context would really illuminate them and humanize them in a way that would really be helpful to people. So that even if Maureen, let's say, does, makes a decision that nobody else, you know, who, nobody who reads the book would have made, they they will see, at least get her rationale and understand how, why for her, it made all the sense in the world. Right. Some say that's sort of an empathetic approach, but to me, it's much. it's more like a, you know, trying to trying to think clearly about something that we're clouded by.
0: Well, it, uh, it could be both. By our, by yeah. I mean, yeah, it's true. It, it's a journalistic, um, integral in thing you did, yeah, yeah, and it's empathetic. So I I praise you for it.
2: Thanks. I I mean, I think what I tried not to be uh, is I tried to make the book not be a work of advocacy journalism. I didn't want it. I didn't want the headline to be, "Who will speak up for these." Women or you know why does no one care about them? I didn't want to be scolding people. I much wanted, to, I much more wanted to be a, sort of do straight ahead journalism, and say okay, let's let's focus on these women and learn about their lives and see, you know, see that they aren't angels and that they aren't devils. And that was my hope uh, to sort of sort of follow the follow the families that way. But I also um, I wanted to tell you know the second story of the case as well as much as I could.
1: Right. And yeah, it and it's uh it it really does make for a fascinating read when that transition uh, happens when you realize that this is uh you're getting into case details and and um coming f- out of the uh, the family uh, dynamic. It's incredible the way your book starts, by the way, and you mentioned it. It starts with Shannon who is running through this gated community, and I just want to get your opinion on um, what happened there. It seems like when she approached these people, she's obviously running from something or someone. And when they say they're going to call the police, their, their account is that she runs away. Do you have an opinion on that?
2: Um, well, I guess there are two possibilities. The first is that when they say we're going to call the police, she interprets it as you're in trouble. So you better run. Yeah. And then the, sec- the second possibility is that she's too hysterical to um, realize that they're trying to help her. There also are two or three neighbors who have not spoken publicly about what they did that night. And there is a, a suspicion that, that, that people aren't talking because there's more information they know about exactly why she was scared. The John has been cleared by police. Her driver's been cleared by the police. But again, we don't really know the ins and outs of their stories the way that we should. If if this ever came to court, we would learn a little bit more. But we, people are people are keeping their mouths shut about this. And if that, that in, in itself is a really sobering thing to think that someone could run screaming and disappear in your neighborhood and you might have seen something but that you wouldn't want uh you would just want the whole thing to go away and that you didn't wouldn't care enough to talk about it it's really troubling and that's one of the other themes of the book
0: now do you have any ideas on uh on who the killer would be i mean uh the The only thing that that it seemed seemed to me that it's, it seems like this this guy would have lived near where the bodies were disposed of because of what he had told Melissa's sister. Watching your sister rot, I just feel like the you know I don't I don't know if if you think if you agree on or on that or or what, but it seems like some of these women were abducted from the city and brought to a more residential area. Just seems to me like he probably lived in in the area near where the bodies were dumped.
2: Um, that's an that's a really good point. I think that at the very least, the the killer knows the area extremely well, because um the um the barrier islands out there, that that stretch of highway, that is not that is not a big commuting highway. That's not where people use to get to work every day. Right. You have to sort of know it exists, or else you're you're not out there. Um. And so the other thing about it is that it happens to be the perfect place to stash something because it's a straight line for 15 miles, far away from everything else. And so that means that if you're out there in the middle of the night and you want to pull over and throw something into the bramble on the side of the highway, you, you can tell if anybody's coming because you'll see their headlights coming from miles away. Mm. So that's how desolate it is. And so um, it becomes very, very easy to imagine that that the killer could could uh, could choose to make that his sort of you know trophy room you know his, his area where he can drive by anytime he likes and and just remind remind himself that they're there
0: right and, and if they were ever found he, he might know about it before it's on the news or something like that
2: right the other thing is that as they started to find more sets of human remains up and down Ocean Parkway and in the env- environs around there they start they found um, two sets of remain, bits of remains that were linked to remains that had been found in a whole other part of Long Island further out east in, um, in a set of pine barrens in, in a town called Manorville. This is interesting because it's so far away from the other place and so out of the way that to think that a, a killer would know both locations and would decide to use both locations to dispose of various parts of their victims that to me, that suggests they must really know Long Island. They must know it cold. Um, yeah. that, that just doesn't happen randomly. Right. Uh, those Pine barons also have had other escorts, bodies from earlier eras. They'd been discovered there that aren't linked to this case. And there was one arrest of a man named John Bitroff of two women who disappeared in the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, he lived out in Manorville and actually lived for decades, led a quiet life there until DNA finally linked him to those two women. There's some speculation that he has killed other people in this case, but um, nothing's come of that yet. The police have had nothing to say about that, and neither has he.
0: Okay. Yeah, it sounds pretty promising, though. And so he was just arrested in 2017, so, um, yeah, I don't know uh, about uh the killer's dna found on some of these other victims but i would have to imagine it it is present there
2: i would hope so you would think he'd be charged already with those other crimes um but they haven't charged him yet right um and so one hopes that he's connected to those but there's no way of knowing just yet
1: you described that area that long stretch there uh pretty well how intensive was any searches out there? Did they take drones or anything that you know of? Uh, Is law enforcement actively looking for more bodies in that area? Do you know?
2: There was a a very intense search conducted in the spring of 2011 when they started to find more remains when Shannon was still missing. They divided everything into a grid. They had police and volunteers from fire departments as well from two different counties all teamed up together, plus cadets. They had um, hook and ladder trucks So that you could stand, a a police officer could stand in a bucket over the bramble with binoculars and look straight down to see what they could see. It's very hard to traverse otherwise. Right. And then the FBI did do some high-resolution aerial photography early on. That was their last involvement in the case for many years. And they they went back and looked in a few places of interest after that aerial photography, but nothing really came of that. And in all that time, they, they never searched this huge marsh in the middle of Oak Beach that was very, very hard to search. And that turned out to be in the end where they found Shannon. So it, it's a complicated uh, set of circumstances. Of course, at the time, people thought that Shannon might have been in the ocean, or that she might have, you know, lost her sense of direction and ended up in the water. So there were all sorts of possibilities.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting that you mentioned the ocean, because if you're disposing of a body and you don't want it found, I would imagine that the ocean would be a much better option if and-
0: you have a boat. If, yeah, if you have a boat but or if you don't, probably not.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I it's uh That's true. It feels like this is a um a very uh popular dumping area for what could be one specific serial killer.
2: It's true. It um it's a spit of land, you know, it's a straight line of land. The bar- these are these are string of barrier islands that have been connected by a highway. Thought so, like a almost like Florida Keys, right? Right. And on either side is water. There's there's the Long Island Sound on one side and there's um, the Atlantic Ocean on the other. And um, you could imagine if you really wanted to get rid of a body, there's all sorts of water where you could do it. But something about where these women were stashed and the, the very even distances between those four women suggests that the killer had plans to 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 revisit the area in some way, to relive
0: the experience.
1: Right. I mean, I'm
2: not a profiler and uh or a forensic psychiatrist but it seems that way to me
0: yeah i think that that's probably likely that the killer returned to the scenes uh
1: yeah definitely felt safe there and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors
0: thanks to our sponsors and
1: now we're back to the program is it your belief that there is one killer um
2: that's a really good question i I go back and forth about whether Shannon is connected to the others or if her death is accidental, and then I also go back and forth on whether, beyond those four women who, whose remains were found so close to one another, whether the others are the uh, all have the same killer as well. I, I think there's something to be said for the idea that uh, that that it is the same killer who merely um, refined his technique over time. That he might have been searching for people who would make good victims from the early 2000s. And then once technology caught up with him, he was suddenly able to go on on Craigslist or Backpage and find exactly the people who he would want to kill. And that's when he he settled on um, on the four women uh, who I focus on in my book, who look so much alike and are all sort of a certain type. Um, yeah. I think that that's plausible. I mean, if it, if it is more than one killer, you would have to believe that... Um, in, in an enormous coincidence, you know, that, that two different independently operating or even three different killers would all be leaving their victims' remains in more or less the same place, it, it seems highly unlikely. On the other hand, it is ha- a terrific place to leave something that you don't want people to find, so who's
1: to say? Yeah. Are there any more women that are missing currently? Do you keep uh, track of, of reports of women who are still working in, um, or women who work in, uh, like the, the sex trade, uh, occupation that are missing. Is there any way that you're able to keep track of that and identify if someone's missing or not?
2: I pay attention to cases up and down the Eastern seaboard. Um, they all, it, it's hard to connect them. The, the most tantalizing connection might be Atlantic city. There's some women there and there's one person in the life of one of those women who, has a connection to one of the women in in Lost Girl, oh, and interesting. so you you start to you start to wonder. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I watch anytime anytime something happens to a sex worker in the Long Island area, it, you start to wonder. Well, maybe that's connected, but it, inevitably it winds up being about an abusive pimp or um, or something like that. Right. So um, it's very possible that that this killer has moved along to a different location assuming they're still alive and around and, and operating.
0: Now, what about the new evidence that um, that happened, uh, that, that came out a couple of weeks ago? The um, the, the true crime community was kind of a, a buzz over uh, over the press conference that happened. What was that like for you?
2: That was interesting. I, I mean, for me, uh, I've been through this before. The, the police every now and then uh, decide to release a piece of information that they've been sitting on for a really long time, thinking that it might be helpful. And in this case, it was a a belt that they believed the killer had handled, a belt that had a certain monogram on it. And um, they had had it for years since the beginning of the case, and now they had decided to um, to tell people about it, hoping that it might bring some tips forward. Yeah. I guess it's easy to be cynical and think that, that they that they're just trying to look busy because they know the movie's going to give them a little more scrutiny. Or it's possible that they're trying to put their best foot forward because there's new leadership there, which is, I think, to be encouraged. And also they, they have a new, you know, Internet-based tip line, which, again, I'm of two minds about. It, it seems shocking to me that they wouldn't have had this, you know, seven years ago or eight years ago. And and also and, – and so you sort of wonder what they've been doing on all that time if they're not going to have an Internet tip line for a case that broke so long ago. Right. So it's a little – a little dispiriting, but you don't want to discourage them. You want—you certainly hope that something comes of it.
1: What do you make of this belt? Do you think that these are initials on there, the uh, the WH or the HW?
2: It's very possible. I think um, when I looked at it, I thought about the other clue in the case, which is burlap. That Apparently, the, f- the first four women to be found, they all were shrouded in burlap. This is a, a fact that tr- trickled out into the media, but that the police have never really confirmed one way or another. But the problem with burlap, of course, is that Long Island is clamming country and horse country and, and, and horticulturally, you know, you know, gardening country. So, you know, the place is lousy with burlap. There's burlap everywhere you go. So it's, it's hard to sort of find a killer based on that. On the other hand, you know, the, the belt, there's something outdoorsy or, or Southwestern about that design, about that belt. And it makes me wonder if, um, those two aren't linked in some way that, that, you know, maybe somebody out in horse country or maybe a clamor or somebody who, but the style seems consistent with
1: that to me. Yeah. I think I misspoke and said uh, W instead of M. So it it looks like from one direction it could be WH and the other direction could be HM. So, sorry, I, I think I misspoke there, but it does have like a, a Southwest uh look to it, like sort of, sort of cowboy like.
0: Well, so they, yeah, so that was drawn on the, onto a yeah. belt, right? So yeah, that's nothing I've ever done. I don't know, uh, but I'm a Yankee. I don't know.
1: <laughs> how closely did you work with uh, law enforcement on this book? You worked very closely with the families. Uh, how closely were you working with law enforcement, and were they receptive to you?
2: Um, the the police haven't really spoken to anyone at length about this case, and and when I was reporting, of course, it was the thick of the case, and so they were trying to keep especially quiet. I did end up having a long. Exclusive interview with the police commissioner at the time, and with his chief of detectives, and so you you see those interviews in Lost Girls, and that's more than anyone else had at the time. And of course, what we learned later, you know, shortly after the book was published, was that the the Suffolk County Police Department was experiencing a, a tremendous corruption scandal at that time that broke shortly after that. One of their most senior members of their department, a guy named James Burke, was um, being probed by the feds. For corruption, for roughing up uh, a suspect, um, tampering with evidence, and and uh, the, the scandal actually went even higher than him. The, the district attorney who was friends with him actually helped cover up uh, his corruption, and so he eventually was knocked out of office as well. James Burke went to jail. The internet rumor will went crazy, saying that Burke must be the killer or must be protecting the killer. None of that is substantiated. But what it means is that other parties, other investigative bodies like the FBI, were really kept at arm's length from this case for years because a corrupt department didn't want people looking over their shoulder and seeing what they were up to. And to me, that's just devastating.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, do you think this uh, this case is going to get solved?
2: I'm hopeful that it'll that it'll follow the pattern of some of these other cases where 10 years out, 15 years out, there's something shakes loose like evidence or a confession or a discovery elsewhere that connects to this. Yeah. Or DNA. But, but I, I don't, I, I certainly, I, I certainly don't think it's imminent. No, I don't.
0: Right.
1: Do you ever get any uh, tips that are emailed uh, directly to you? I do. Oh, you I do.
2: do. I always, you know, encourage them. Yeah. I always encourage them to contact the police. It's always people who, um, who have heard some of the particulars and think that it lines up with something they know about. And then, inevitably i talk with them or, or you know with them back and forth for a while and then they go, things go a little deeper and, and they get disqualified in different ways but you know I, again i'm not the expert and i'm not a cop so i, I completely no, no matter what they have to say i the first thing i ask tell them all is to please go to law enforcement
1: yeah that is the most responsible answer that you can give when you're when you receive a tip um being in your position do you have any uh, plans for a follow-up book on this or a, a follow-up book on the Long Island Island serial killer? Or are you exploring more uh, true crime topics?
2: I've written a new chapter to Lost Girls that's in an edition of the book that just went on sale this week. It focuses on some developments in the investigation like John Bitroth and, and the corrupt detective James Burke. But it mostly pays attention to Mary Gilbert, Shannon's mother, and what happened to her in the years after uh, lost girls was published she had a, a a very tragic end and um and i wanted to do her justice because she really moved the case forward in a way that others hadn't she also is the subject of the movie and so i thought people would see the movie and want to know more about what happened to her after the timeline of the movie yeah the so readers can find out more about her life in that extra chapter
1: yeah yeah she is a uh, fascinating character and it's uh, really cool that you focused on her. Um, is there anything you can say about, uh, you said that she had a really tragic end. Is there anything that you can say about that or should, uh, or should people read the extra chapter?
2: Well, this is public knowledge. It's, it's addressed in a, um, in sort of a coda to the movie, but it, in um, the summer of 2017, she was murdered by another daughter of hers who was, had a psychotic break and was mentally ill. And Mary had been trying to care for that daughter and, and, and had been working really hard to try to make things right in, in all areas of her life. And, and so it was just tragic to see that her life would end
0: that way.
1: Uh, yeah, that is, uh, that is, you can't, there's no words for that. You can't, no. yeah, that's tough, Horrifying. Did it ever get you get you down? Did you find you were going into dark places you didn't want to explore when you were writing the book? I'd
2: had a lot of experience in New York Magazine writing about people in crisis and people who had under uh, experienced really difficult tragedies. So I felt as if I was ready. But yes, this this built on itself, and there were so many people leading you know such difficult lives that it was very hard to to keep even keeled while I was working on it, and I needed some real R and R once once it was over. But I don't want to. I don't want to suggest that, I, that this was any great hardship compared to the actual people who were kind enough to participate in the book. I mean, these people opened up their lives in very, in very trusting ways. And so that, to me, they're the, they're the ones who are really you know suffering in their lives.